Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 490. Uh, just doing a little recording uh, right now. It's about 7 o'clock on Tuesday night. Um, I won't be in class on Wednesday because my son, we had to take him to the doctor for his uh, his regular two-year-old checkup, and uh, he might have a little bit of a either sinusy or something pink eye, but just to be on the safe side, I'm staying home with him tomorrow. Um, he's not sick. He's actually in a pretty good mood, so... I'm going to try to keep this kind of quiet and not too theatrical because my son, you might hear him here or there. Um, I'm kind of recording close to his bedroom because that's how our house is laid out. And uh, hopefully it's not too loud. So if you hear anything, a little, any little noises, that's my kid. So what I want you to do right now, uh, go over to the PowerPoint. It's a PowerPoint I was using in class the other day. Um, if you go over to slide number 13, that's where we're going to be started, point four, Sister Amy, uh, we're going to be talking about Amy Simple Pearson, McPherson. Amy Simple McPherson. Uh, as I said, I'm actually kind of glad that it kind of lined up that we're doing this on a different day than the Azusa Street revival, even though it is connected in some fashion, as we're going to get into. There's a lot of movements that do come out of the Pentecostal movement. There's a lot of movements that come out of the Pentecostal movement. Talked about some of them last class, Assemblies of God, uh, the Apostolic Movement, things like that. Uh, the, the one that gets prominent at first, the one that gets most attention at first, is Amy Simple McPherson. And she's an interesting person uh, pretty to talk about. Her early life, uh, she's actually not American. Uh, she has a very big you know, impact on the United States, but she's actually born in Canada. She's born in the to our neighbor to the north around 1890. 1890, she's born... Um, she is born into a very mainline Christian family. You know, nothing too um, evangelistic, certainly nothing Pentecostal. I believe her father was a Methodist. Um, you know, she grows up with a fairly, you know, straightforward, um, you know, kind of uh, normal upbringing, nothing too overly evangelical, too religious. I mean, yes, her dad is Methodist, so you know, her parents are definitely Christians. Um, nothing too crazy going when she's going on. Not that it gets crazy, but you know, nothing, nothing too out of the ordinary. She's growing up. So when she becomes a teenager, uh, that she becomes kind of disenchanted with mainline religion. She feels that, um, you know, it's making too many concessions in terms of evolution and things like that. And maybe to go to a different type of religion. If you go over one slide, you will see her and her first husband. Um, yes, her, she's actually born Amy Kennedy. She's born Amy Kennedy, uh, the name Amy Simple McPherson. Those are her husbands. We'll get into that in a second. When she's about 17 years old, she goes to a revival in Canada. She goes to a revival in Canada, and that's where she meets Robert Simple. Uh, Robert Simple, as you can see right there, that's the guy on the right. He is a missionary. He's a missionary. He's actually from Ireland. He's actually from Ireland. He's come over to Canada to help evangelize. Uh, this is right around the time of the Wales Revival, which I talked about. Um, he is influenced by the Wales Revival. He's Irish, not Welsh, but definitely in this kind of movement, this kind of Wales Revival movement. And he's also a Pentecostal. He's also a Pentecostal. I did mention that there are some Pentecostals prior to the Azusa Street Revival. That's really the explosion. Uh there are other elements in this. Uh, they call themselves Pentecostals, pretty similar to what's going to happen later on after Azusa starts developing. But he is a Pentecostal. He is a Pentecostal. Uh, apparently, whenever they meet for the first time, she just becomes totally besmit with him, totally enraptured by him, just like by him, by his theology. 
Uh, pretty much his whole vibe, she just really feels attracted to. He's a little bit older than her, but not much. Uh, they're both very, very young when they get married. Uh, she's like 18. He's early 20s, maybe even a teen, late teenager himself. So they marry. They marry in 1908. Uh, the, after they marry, they actually do move to the United States. They go to Chicago. We've talked about Chicago, kind of a hub for um, for Moody and some of his disciples. But they're actually not with a Moody disciple. Uh, they are with actually a disciple of um, Parham, another Glossinalia person. Uh, basically, they get instructed on Glossinalia, and in particular, she gets. Um, that's my dog. That's Hera. That's the corgi you just heard there. Uh, she gets really trained or instructed or kind of pushed in the interpretation of Glossinalia. Uh, basically, that's something they do kind of early on. We Remember, we talked about there's different sects of Pentecostalism and how they view Glossinalia. Uh, she, at least early on, is really pushed as somebody who can interpret it. You know, somebody, when somebody starts speaking in tongues, she is somebody who can interpret it uh, through the spirit. Through the spirit is basically how they, they push it. So they, you know, they're, they're pushing this idea. They seem pretty happy. They're, they're pretty straightforward. Um, you know, they, they, they live in, they live in Chicago for a while. You know, they're getting instructed on, you know, religious stuff. She's getting instructed on how to interpret Glossinalia. Uh, 1909, they decide to take a missionary trip to become missionaries to China. They decide that God's leading them to go to China. They go to China. They stay in Hong Kong for a while. At some point during their missionary journey, um, they get pregnant. Uh, basically, she gets pregnant with their first child. And uh, on the way back, or not quite on the way back, but basically shortly after she gets pregnant, uh, she gets malaria, and also he gets malaria as well. Uh, they both get malaria. They're starting to you know, maybe think about maybe we should go back home, but are we healthy enough to go back home? Uh, make a very long, sad story short. Uh, Robert ends up dying. Robert ends up dying. Uh, Robert, Robert, uh, uh, sorry, Robert Simple ends up dying. And uh, she actually gives birth to their daughter about a month after she dies. After he dies. Not, no, she's, she's alive. But her husband, Robert Simple, he has passed away. Uh, she's 20 years old now and a widow. And she has a daughter, a daughter that she names Roberta Starr. Uh, Roberta after her father, Robert, Roberta, and Star because she's like, no, this needs to be a point of bright light, a source of hope when I don't really have that much hope anymore. And so her daughter is Robert Star Simple. Uh, her, her daughter's going to come back a little bit later. Uh, whenever she comes back home to America, she, you know, back to, back to North America, she actually moves in with her mom. She moves in with her mom. Uh, that's pretty straightforward. That's a very ordinary thing to do uh, when you're, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's a, it's a very horrible story, frankly. Uh, you know, whenever your your husband dies and you're like 20 years old and you have a kid, you're, you're going to move in with your mother. And so her mom's name is Mildred Kennedy. Um, her mom's actually going to be around in her, um, her, her ministry later on. Mildred Kennedy, uh, she is a bit more um, prone to go for the, you know, more uh, charismatic, if you will, the more, um, I don't want to say, you know, flamboyant religious expression compared to her husband uh, later on. Um, Amy, Amy's mother, you know, Mildred's husband is going to die. And then um, Mildred and Amy get very involved with the Salvation Army. They get very involved in the Salvation Army. 
they actually moved to New York. They moved to New York, and she's kind of ministering with the Salvation Army. While she's ministering to the Salvation Army, you can go over one slide, she meets a man, uh, an accountant. Uh, his name is Harold McPherson. Uh, he's working as an accountant. Um, and there's definitely some attraction there. There's definitely some uh, some interest there. He is not as religious as she is. Um, there's a sense with Robert Simple, he is much more religious than Amy is. He's kind of the the real pushing force in their partnership missionary ship. Harold McPherson, as I said, he's not super religious by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you know, he is religious, but he's not like no nowhere near as uh you know, overly devout, pious, I don't know what the word I'm looking for as, as compared to Amy, let alone Robert Simple. But she seems like a, but he seems like a very stabilizing force for her. Um, you know, he's an accountant. He has a very safe, you know, very stable job. He's okay with religion, but it's a real sense of like stability. And um, her mom is like, you know, maybe this might be good for you. You're young enough. You should do this. And so, actually, fairly quickly, she gets remarried. In 1912, she gets married. 1912, she gets married, so she's about 22 years old at this point. Um, after they get married, he's like, you know what? We should we should go away somewhere a bit more quiet, a place where we can raise a family better. Um, you know, New York is a fine place to you know work, but maybe not a good place to raise a family. So they move to Rhode Island, actually Providence, Rhode Island, which is, I guess, another full circle thing for this class, because as we know... Rhode Island was established as a religious uh, colony, a kind of a safe haven for the dissidents. Uh, shortly after they move to uh, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, she gets pregnant. She gets pregnant with her son. Her son's name is Rolf, uh, Rolf McPherson. So he's going to become a he's going to become a force later uh, as well for this uh, whole. Um, you know, this whole kind of mini family dynasty. We'll talk about Rolf a little bit later, along with his, his sister, Roberta, or half-sister, I should say. But apparently, uh, these days in Providence are not very happy for Amy. Uh, she is miserable. Uh, she is depressed, like clinically depressed. She has a host of emotional disorders going on. Uh, she, she feels that she's just languishing away. She's kind of turned her will on God. Uh, she actually gets very sick. She gets very sick with a disease. It's probably appendicitis, almost certainly appendicitis. Uh, apparently she has an operation. It doesn't go very well. Her recovery is just, is just a nightmare. And so while she's like recovering from this, she's like, you know what? God is punishing me. Uh, God is punishing me is because, you know, I had this call in my life. I was supposed to go preach for him, but I decided to take the comfortable way, and now God is punishing me for it. You know, I denied God's call for me, and now God is uh, letting it, you know, giving me, you know, sickness, uh, not, I guess, to punish me. Uh, this is definitely Shades of Seymour. Remember how Seymour uh, gets smallpox, and he's like, okay, God took the vision from my eye because I didn't begin preaching like he told me to. Uh, Amy Simpson McPherson has a little bit more of the same attitude. Now, McPherson would later claim, uh, once she feels, basically, once she obeys what she feels is the Holy Spirit or God's desire to let her go preach, uh, she claimed that she felt better immediately, she was able to get up, and she was cured of all of her mental illnesses. She was like, this is, this is it, this is wonderful, I, I've made it, um, I've, you know, God, God healed me, God cured me immediately, I'm going on the road, I'm going to preach. 
And ironically, that's what she does. And in 1915, so she's still very young. She's only 25. Quite a lot she's lived so far. Uh, she actually leaves her husband and her kids, including her very young son, who's like a year old, probably the same age as my son. Well, my son just turned two, so even younger than my son, which I just can't imagine doing. But, you know, if God tells you to do it, I guess if God tells you to do it. Uh, she leaves her family, her her husband, and she leaves her um, and her son, and they basically say, and she says, "I'm going on the road preaching." Go over one slide, you will see her preaching. Uh, yeah, she begins preaching, and it gets pretty. There's a lot of interest pretty quickly. Um, at first, Harold McPherson is supportive of this. I should mention. Uh, at first, Harold McPherson's like, okay, you know what? This is good for you. You know, I'm, I got nothing against religion. It seems fine to me. If you think God wants you to do this, I'll help you out. Um, you know, he, you know, he doesn't sell his business, but he kind of goes on a sabbatical for a while, um, decorates their car to be like a ministry mobile so they can go around. Uh, however, he does not like the instability of this all. He just thinks that, you know, it, it you know, it, it's nice to talk about doing or do every once in a while, but he's like, you know, I'm, Looking to have a wife and a kid, you know, we have a family, you know, I want to have like the American dream, and this is not part of it. And so, actually, kind of early on, he leaves her to go back to Rhode Island. He's like, Look, you know, you can keep doing your ministering. Um, I'm going to go back to Rhode Island and I am going to, you know, live my life there, maybe look after our children. Uh, what's interesting is not too long after this, actually, a couple years later in 1918, when she's kind of, a, you know, become much bigger. Uh, he actually files for separation. He files for separation, and then ultimately they do get divorced. They get divorced in 1921. And, and the fact that she is divorced makes her very unconventional. You could go onto that slide where they show her with all the children. Uh, very, very unconventional for religious fundamentalists and this people in this ilk. Uh, she is not your typical... Um, she is not your typical preacher. She, she is definitely not the typical type of person who gets a lot of prominence in particularly these fundamentalist religious circles. I mean, for one, she's a woman. That is, you don't have too many women preachers out there in this time period. And not only that, she's divorced. Uh, the fact that she is a divorced woman is not lost on her critics and you know other other religious people who are like, yeah, she's got a double whammy. You know, according to our interpretation of the Bible, she should not be anywhere close to a pulpit. Um, as a woman and a divorced woman at that, but she's really popular. As you can go, you can see like the masses of children coming out to hear her. Uh, she is quite popular. Uh, she really starts growing in popularity. She's doing the traveling revival thing, um, which we've talked about before. That's kind of an older tradition within the United States. Uh, she travels, preaches, works, whatever you want to call it. Uh, she actually goes with her mom. She actually does it with her mom for a while. So, her mom is okay with this preaching thing. Her mom is okay with her getting divorced, which is very unique for the time period. I mean, we're talking for, we're talking late 19 teens, you know, you know, 1916, 1918. This is not a very progressive time. Now, whenever she does hear about Azusa, whenever she does hear about Azusa, she is kind of hesitant to embrace some aspects of it. You go over one slide, you'll see that her reaction to it. At first, she is kind of uh, hesitant to really embrace some of the more um, uh, the wild flailing about the kind of jumping around, singing loud, that sort of thing. 
but she does speak a lot about the Holy Spirit. Uh, she is somebody who may not agree with the tactics or the way that Azusa is manifest. She does agree with a lot of the theology of it. This idea that God can and does use common people, ordinary people, the Holy Spirit can come on anybody, and she would claim she's living proof because, hey, she's a divorced woman, and look, God is using her. Now, I, I kind of mentioned this the other day in class, but it kind of bears repeating. Uh, she doesn't really play into this, but like, there's a lot of talk about her sex appeal as being part of her mission. The fact that like you will, you can look up newspaper articles about her, and they will inevitably talk about like how she's so attractive and how like you know men want to go get baptized three or four times by her because she's so attractive, that sort of stuck. Um, like I said, she's not really at this time period. She's not dressing super provocatively. She ordinarily would wear like a, at least early on. Uh, the picture you see right there with everybody on the ground, that's that's a bit later on whenever she does start changing her attire. Actually, go back to slide 16 if you want. Uh, that's kind of what she wears at least early on. It's kind of a Salvation Army outfit. So it's like she's wearing a nurse's dress with a Salvation Army cloak over the top of it. Uh, you know, she's trying to be pretty straightforward, uh, you know, this kind of like no-nonsense type of shtick about it. Uh, this will change in time period, particularly after 1918. We'll talk about what happens in 1918. Uh, but yeah, her appearance is always talked about. And I would like to talk about that whenever I come back to class on Monday. Now, to be fair to Amy, she never really plays into these ideas, but she also doesn't go out of her way to dispute them. That's something very interesting, at least early on, and even later on. She She has a very interesting... A coy relationship with the fact that, like, you know, people are talking about the fact that people come to their her services because of the way she looks. You know, she's not, she's not, like I said, at least at this point, she's not going overly glamorous or she's never super provocative. We'll get into that in a second. Um, she, <coughs> sorry, I just coughed. She also does start out as a faith healer. That's something kind of interesting. At least early on, she's really pushing this idea that she is a faith healer. Uh, she is promoting herself as faith healing. Uh, that picture you have, which, like I said, it's a little bit later on. You have people like slain in the spirit, that sort of idea behind it. But this idea that she's promoting herself as a faith healer, the idea that you come to an Amy, an Amy Semper McPherson revival, you get prayed over, you will be healed by the Holy Spirit. As she becomes more popular, that kind of gets distanced from. She never completely goes away from it, but she definitely never... As she gets more popular, she doesn't focus it as much. Um, you know, later on in her career, she will still have, um, you know, what she calls healing services. They are not nearly pushed quite as much. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier, something happens in 1918. They do. In 1918, she does probably the most uh, beneficial thing for her career, the thing that really launches her into the stratosphere. Prior to 1918, she was a traveling preacher, tra plavering, you know, traveling evangelist. Uh, not very, I mean, well known, but nowhere near the level of somebody like a Billy Sunday. Uh, you know, Billy Sunday was way bigger than she was before 1918. Uh, yeah, she she's a known quantity, but not one that's especially well known. However, 1918, everything changes because in 1918 she moves to Los Angeles. She moves to Los Angeles in 1918. And that's where it hits the frickin' stratosphere. Um, like, she always had pretty good crowds before 1918, before she moved to Los Angeles. This is a different level. But when she gets to Los Angeles, like, tens of thousands of people are coming to see her services. They're lining up 
for regular services. Um, that, that's kind of a difference we'll talk about in just a second. But, you know, they are coming regularly to come see her. You know, the fact that she has a regular, it's almost like a residency in Las Vegas. That sounds terrible. But it's not like she's not like she's a touring musician. She has a residency. She is staying in the same place and people come to her. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Los Angeles, Azusa. Well, you need to understand, even though it's only 15 years difference or so between Azusa and um, Amy, McSim- Amy, uh, Amy Simple McPherson moving to Los Angeles, it's a different world because Los Angeles was now becoming associated with Hollywood. When the Azusa Street Revival happens in 1906, Hollywood doesn't really exist. The movies are very small. You have movies like, you know, Man Washing a Horse. They're, they're very short Nickelodeon-type movies. In just 15 years, you have a different level of movie. Things like Birth of a Nation come out in 1914. Movies are getting much longer, much more epic. And there's a real industry. And Hollywood itself, uh, Los Angeles, is becoming associated with the movies and that old, you know, razzle-dazzle, uh, theatrical... Uh, spectacle. Now, even though from the pulpit, she would often decry the church, uh, often decry the movies as being a you know anti-moral, anti-God. Uh, she is more than happy to use their techniques, and particularly that sense of spectacle. Uh, her services would often have elaborate set pieces, costumes, stunts, all sorts of crazy things she she throws together, and it becomes more and more elaborate as she gets more and more popular. Uh, she is really leaning into that old razzle-dazzle. So kind of early on, when she moves to Los Angeles, she says, you know what? I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build a regular church. This is going to be my regular residency place. And it gets built. It's called the Angelus Temple. Angelus Temple, uh, it's actually still there. It's actually still there. It is still in active use as a church in Los Angeles. Uh, this this temple does build a quite a while to build. It sits about 5,000 people, which is tremendously huge for the time period, and it's completed over five years. It gets finished in 1923. Uh, she finances it mainly through donations. Basically, she gets people to build it pretty much at cost um, and saying that, you know, we're going to take donations for this. For, you know, we're going to pick it up from the people. Uh, you know, she still she has residencies in other places around Los Angeles, uh, you know, various halls and not arenas, but, you know, theaters, but she, she wants this idea that she can have a place that she can be regularly and it does get built. Now, Angel's Temple is often hailed as the first mega church, and that's a very important term, one that gets thrown out a lot nowadays. Uh, mega churches are a very American thing. Uh, do you have big churches all over the world? Absolutely. Are most of these big churches in places like Europe, old cathedrals, um, Crazy elaborate. Oh, yeah, 100%. However, mega churches are built for a ginormous size congregation. Uh, nowadays, a mega church is defined as any church that has over 2,000 members, period. If you have over 2,000 members, uh, you can be considered a mega church. That's nowadays. Um, I don't know if I'm sure there's some mega churches in Thibodeau, almost certainly in Homa. I, I can tell you about some around like Baton Rouge, or even there's one or two in Hammond, even. What's different though is the fact that this is a consistent membership. Okay, single meetings for more than 2,000 people for a, for like a traveling evangelist, that's common. That's you know, that's been going on since the second great awakening, even the first great awakening. Uh, you know, we're talking like you know, 30,000 coming to a service in Philadelphia. 
But that's not a regular service. That's not a weekly service that you're having that many people. It's a special occasion, special stunt, special speaker. Amy Simple McPherson is getting over 5,000 people every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, she's getting 5,000 people. This is very unheard of. This is a very unheard of idea in this time period. And, and, you know, and that's a very American thing. Like I said, they have large churches in other parts of the world, but those are buildings and those congregations are much smaller, particularly with some of those big cathedrals, um, you know, like Notre Dame or something in, in Paris. Like the regular congregation doesn't really go there. That's just a thing you go to at certain times or, you know, very special places where the bishop is or what have you. This is a different level. Okay. Now, it is argued, and her critics are quick to point it out, and you know, by the way, the, the pictures of the Angel's Temple, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, like I said, it's still there. It's still there. It kind of looks like a Roman Colosseum or something. But her critics often say that McPherson is trying to, re- is trying to actually manufacture a revival. Okay, we've talked about these revivals throughout American history, the fact that they come up and they get really big for a while, and they go away. Um, it could, they, her critics often argued she's trying to make up a revival. She's building a building, and she's basically trying to turn religion into a spectacle. Okay, basically where the spectacle is part of the appeal. Where you're going to church, not necessarily for the religion, but for the spectacle of it. If you go over one slide, I call this one the razzle-dazzle. Slide number 19. Uh, they have her and some of her people in costume. Uh, her theatricality gets more and more pronounced. Um, you know, When she started out, she's wearing a simple nurse's outfit with a Salvation Army cloak. That gets way and way, way more elaborate as time goes on. She starts wearing more and more makeup, getting more glamorous with her hair and things like that. Now, McPherson also, if you go over one slide, she, she, her theology, uh, what she's the founder of, what her own little thing, is called the Foursquare Gospel. She calls it the Foursquare Gospel. Foursquare Gospel Movement, Foursquare Religion, whatever you want to call it, Foursquare Christianity, just four squares. Uh, basically, she claims that she is following the four squares, the four aspects of Jesus' ministry, uh, that being Savior, so dying on the cross. Uh, giver of the Holy Spirit, so that's the little that's the little dove, uh, King, King of Kings, that's a crown, and ultimately, um, let's see, Savior, Healer, King, and Baptizer. Oh, Healer, that's with you know Eucharist communion type of thing, you know, giving of His body for other people. So it's the idea that you know these are the four aspects of Jesus, and this is what you need to do for yourself. It has a lot of overlap with Pentecostalism. A lot of overlap with Pentecostalism. In fact, um, McPherson was originally ordained by the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God are the ones who originally ordain her. Um, Right around the same time she moves to Los Angeles, she kind of leaves to do her own thing afterwards. Um, She breaks with the denomination. She's like, you know what? I can follow this denomination or I can do my own thing. I'm more popular than they are. I'm bringing in more donations. I'm having a bigger pop, you know, bigger services. So why should I listen to them? Why should I listen to them? Uh, she even starts up her own college, her own college, her own Bible college to straight to train students in the idea of the four square gospel or how to commit all four squares. And it's really big. You know, something you can say about McPherson and she has her critics and they are definitely still around. Uh, she does a lot to mainstream Pentecostalism. 
there's a lot in the Pentecostal movement that wouldn't have gotten as much national attention or mainstream acknowledgement had it not been for Amy Semper McPherson. Huge part of that. And her critic. Now, does she have critics? Yes, she is. Tons of critics. Uh, she is a woman. She is a woman. She is divorced. We've talked about it before. That's a big part of her criticism. Uh, her emphasis on healing in the supernatural does not rub a lot of mainline people the right way. Yes, as time goes on, she kind of pushes back on that. Uh, she's not one to do a lot of glossinalia in her service. At least early on, she's pushing the fact that she can interpret glossinalia. She's not doing too, too much in her services. Uh, same thing with the faith healing. Early on, she's really pushing faith healing. Uh, later, as she gets more and more popular, she doesn't push it as much. It never goes away. She'll still have services from time to time, but they don't get advertised. Uh, her, she's also very willing to go against the main line, not main line, but like the, the establishment, I guess, the the Pentecostal, I don't want to use the term elites, but like the Pentecostal establishment, She's willing to go their own way. That doesn't endear her with the larger movement of Pentecostalism. But remember, being independent was kind of built into the denomination. So that's kind of a wash there. Now, the other thing they talk about is her status as a woman. Her status as a woman and how she's influencing other women. There's a lot of talk in this time period. I was even going to give you an article. that Basically, it talks about, like, you know, what if women try to model themselves after Amy Simple McPherson? It happens early on with attire. Uh, early on with attire, a lot of women who go to her church start dressing like her, saying that's the way you should dress. And as she becomes more glamorous and you know dressing more, putting on more makeup, um, you know, doing different outfits, they're like, "Oh my gosh, is this appropriate?" If you ever one slide, <laughs> I, I decided to call this one the sexy sister. Uh, se- most of the time, she was called Sister Amy. Uh, and basically, it's the fact that she is dressing up more and more in costume, and they say that some of these costumes are very provocative. Now, if you look at the pictures right there, I mean, the one of her is a little Dutch girl. That's just, I don't know what that's supposed to be. Uh, the lady cop one, that's a pretty famous one where she, you know, she says, stop, you're going to hell. Uh, stop or else you will go to hell. I think the one on the left, though, is probably the one that gets them more critics about. More critics about is, you know, whenever she's dressing like this kind of Hollywood glamour thing. I mean, yes, it's a very modest outfit. Nothing is being shown there. It's probably less revealing than the thing she was wearing earlier. But it's the idea that she's wearing this much makeup. She's spending this much on her hair. This is a divorced woman. Um, and, and, and also, by the time we get into the 1920s, her level of celebrity is commented upon a lot. The fact that, you know, she's supposed to be a woman of God, she was supposed to be a preacher, and she's becoming a bona fide celebrity. Most of the rest of the country views her the same way they do the rest of the Hollywood stars. It's just like, oh yeah, you know, Los Angeles, that's where all the, you know, the, the beautiful people are, and there's movie stars, and people like Amy Simple McPherson. And I cannot iterate this enough, she is very popular in Los Angeles. One stat I read said that 10% of the population of Los Angeles were members of the Angelus Temple. I'll repeat that. 10%. And yes, I know, Los Angeles is not nearly as big as it's going to get after World War II. But if 10% of the population of a city, not a town, are all members of the same church, that's a force to be reckoned with. And the fact that she is like one of the institutions in Los Angeles in the early 1920s. Uh, 
And so there's a lot of talk about, is this appropriate? What's appropriate for her? Is she somebody that we should model ourselves after? And this goes to the stratosphere even more crazy in 1926 when the scandal happens. That's right. In May of 1926, she disappears. This one gets all the attention for a while. Uh, This really makes her a national figure, even an international figure. This is the one that gets her the most prominence. I mean, remember, she had been kind of hearkened as a movie star before, something that you know people talked about from time to time. But this, this case gets her to a different level. And I'm going to tell you right now, we don't know exactly what happened. To this day, this is an unsolved case. We have very strong theories, but there is nothing that is definitive about this. So in May of 1926, uh, McPherson, she is with one of her secretaries, they go to Venice Beach. They're going to Venice Beach on the Pacific Pacific Ocean. Uh, She's like, hey, I want to go swimming. She's wearing a green swimsuit. That green swimsuit's going to come up a lot during the trial afterwards. So basically, she's like, hey, hey, I'm going to take a swim. I'm wearing my nice green swimsuit. And so she's like, I'm going swimming. And all of a sudden, she disappears. She disappears. There's no evidence. There's no evidence. They can't find her. Her secretary is like, where'd she go? I can't see her. Uh, there's not a ton of people at the beach, but there's some people at the beach. She has Nobody has any idea where she is. Now, she's actually supposed to give a talk that night. She's supposed to give a sermon at the church, and her mom, Mildred Kennedy, gives the sermon in her stead. And during the sermon that night, her mom kind of acknowledges the disappearance of, uh, of Sister Amy her daughter in a not great way. Um, if you're trying to not have rumors or, um, you know, uh, people assume the worst because apparently, uh, ending the sermon, you know, whenever, you know, cause some of the prisoners like, Hey, you know, where's, where's sister Amy, you know, uh, where's your daughter? Isn't she supposed to be here? There, there's always some rumors that, you know, she can be found. Uh, her mom, Mildred Kennedy says, quote, sister is with Jesus. Guys, when you say things like so-and-so is with Jesus, it sounds like they died. And that's what the that's what the congregation believes. They're like, oh my God, she's dead. She's dead, and there is hysteria. There's all sorts of hysteria. People are like, oh no, no, maybe she's missing. Then they start trying to find her. They're like, where is she? Uh, they send divers into the ocean. They send divers into the ocean. Uh, trying to trying to find her, um, you know. Her mom is is out there. Her mom is convinced that she is dead. Her mom is convinced that she is dead. Um, you know, you, you don't say things like "sister is with Jesus" if you don't. You don't say your daughter's dead unless you think your daughter's dead. You just don't say that. This goes up for forever. You know, they're sending divers. Uh, all of a sudden, you're, get, you're getting all these tips around the country that, oh, maybe she was kidnapped, but there is no ransom note. And, like, you know, people around the country are like, oh, I saw her, even though a lot of people don't really know exactly what she looks like. And nothing really comes of it. So about five weeks after her disappearance, about five weeks after her disappearance, they hold a memorial service. That's right. They hold her funeral. They hold her funeral. They're like, all right. You know, it's been five weeks. We've, we we ha- we found no body. Nothing's washed ashore. Uh, there's no ransom note. No nothing. Uh, there's no trace of her. She must be dead. We'll have a funeral. You know, it's, it's it's heartbreaking, but maybe we'll move on. Three days after her memorial service, go over one slide. She is weirdly discovered. <laughs> she reappears in a Mex- on the Mexican border. She's on the Mexican border. 
uh, in Arizona, basically right across the border from Arizona. She she stumbles into a uh, Mexican couple's house, and she's like looks dehydrated and disheveled. She asks for some like water, and she looks and you know then she kind of passes out. Uh, the couple figures out okay clearly this gringa is American, so we should you know probably take her to America, which isn't that far. Uh, the border is, you know, the border is still the border, but it's not like they have a wall or a moat or anything. Like, they, they can get there, and the Border Patrol understands that. Uh, once she gets to the hospital in Arizona, they discover, oh, my God, this is Amy Simple McPherson. She, she's here. This is nuts. This is, this is crazy pants. And so her mom, you can go over one slide. This is actually a pretty, this is actually the best group picture of her family. Uh, you see her mom, and then um, her daughter, Roberta's right there. Son Roth is next to her. The people on the side are the district attorneys in Los Angeles. That's going to come into play. Because basically, whenever she starts coming to, she looks like very sunburnt. Uh, looks like she's had some exposure. She claims that she had been wandering on the desert for a very long time. Um, she claims that she had been kidnapped. She's like, yeah, I was at the beach. And then um, a couple came and said, hey, we want you to pray over our baby or we need prayer for healing. And so I went to their car. Then they put some chloroform on me and they threw me in the trunk and they drove me across the Mexican border. And I stayed in the little Mexican border place. And she was claiming that she was in this little shack and she talked about all the people there. And, uh, you know, that's what happened to me. And then one day I escaped and I had to walk 12 hours before I collapsed in front of that couple's house. And I just so happened to, uh, you know, they seemed to be nice and, and the Lord saved me and I'm back here and I'm back here in America. Uh, thank God. And when she comes back to Los Angeles, there are over 50,000 people there to greet her. Um, even bigger than who came to see Woodrow Wilson earlier. Like there are so many people like when Woodrow Wilson was sitting president, I should say. Like, this is bigger than the president coming. There are 50,000 people at the train station there to greet her. Be like, oh my gosh, Sister Amy, you're saved. Thank God you got out of that horrible predicament with those horrible, dirty kidnappers. That's so horrible. And it all sounds too good to be true. It sounds like it's an amazing movie. You know, what somebody who was feared dead, they, honest to God, had a memorial service. Her mom was convinced she was dead. Uh, it sounds like a great story and a lot of people didn't believe it and they start asking questions and as they start asking more questions, the, the details become sketchier and sketchier. They get shadier and shadier. There's a lot more gaps in her story and the LA authorities. Okay. They're not huge fans of McPherson. They feel that she's bringing in the wrong kind of attention to Los Angeles um, you know, they don't like the type of attention she's bringing to the city. You know, her big temple, it's, it's tax exempt, so they're not exactly getting money from it. And it's, you know, it's bringing in a, a lot of traffic and just, they're, they're not crazy about her. And so they're like, you know, we should have a grand jury. We should investigate this, um, either to find out what happened with the kidnapping or should we arrest you for fraud? You know, did you fake the kidnapping? And if you fake the kidnapping, there was a lot of resources that got used. I, I forgot to mention, um, while trying to find her on the beach, uh, two people drowned. Two people drowned trying to find Amy McSimple McPherson. Uh, they, they were not Navy divers or anything, but just like, you know, concerned citizens were looking for her, and they straight up drowned. Like, people died trying to find her. And they're like, look, your story is sketchy, so if you made this up, there should be some punishments for it. 
And so as you go over one slide, she gets put on trial. There's kind of a grand jury, not a full trial. Actually, you can see right there uh, on the picture on the left, there's the swimsuit, the green swimsuit. They're like, hey, this swimsuit was found at another place. You, you claimed it was missing. Sorry, you claimed that you disappeared with it, but you can never find it. And then we found the swimsuit. And it's the same swimsuit you bought because it was a weird brand or whatever. And these hearings go on for a very long while. These hearings go on for a very, very, very long while. Um, it becomes, you know, must-see news for everybody in Los Angeles. It becomes a national story, like what is going on with this McPherson trial. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, conjecture. Remember, I said nothing is definitive, but there's a lot going out there that she might have faked it all. Uh, she might have faked it all. In fact, if you go over one more slide, you will see... Uh, uh, deny Amy was kidnapped. Just another case about this basically saying the police say that there's no way she was kidnapped. Uh, she probably went uh, went away. She probably went away. She went into hiding. Why did she go into hiding? Well, apparently, the rumor was she went to a little town called Caramel by the Sea. Caramel by the Sea, a little seaside town where they have cabins and junk. When, where she hung out for about a month with, if you go over one more slide, her lovel Kenneth Orman's son. Now, ironically, we actually have one picture of the two of them together. This is the one photograph of them together. Um, Orman's son was married. He was married. He did not have a very good marriage, but he had a marriage nonetheless. Um, apparently, he was known to cheat on his, well, he was known to have a mistress or something. It might have been McPherson, but he had another mistress at least. Uh, so he is definitely married, but he's also a former employee of the temple. He worked for the temple for a while. Um, he wasn't working at the temple at this point in time, but... The conjecture was they were lovers, and so they decided to get away for a while, um, pretend she was dead. I don't know why they pretended that she was dead, but they wanted to have their own little love nest. And they sensationalized the crud out of this in the newspapers, making it seem like, you know, this is some den of sin and sexuality and ooh, all sorts of nasty uh, nothing definitive. They did a lot of research. They bring in a, I mean, I'm very much compressing this. You can read a lot of good books about this. Uh, the trial itself is fascinating about all the, all the people who get brought in and all the other stuff that's brought in and everybody's names get brought in the mud and like, Oh, was it a different woman that they saw, uh, that they saw, um, Orson with that sort of stuff. At the end of the day though, you know, it is a grand jury trial. They don't come up with anything. They pretty much find nothing definitive. They, they can't prove that, um, Amy was kidnapped, but they also can't prove that she faked it. Nothing is definitive. She did say she did. She would later on never admit that she faked anything. Uh, she would always hold on to her dying day that she was kidnapped. Her profile does get a lot bigger. The church also grows, but it's kind of getting a bunch of interesting attention. Uh, by the time you get to her later years, like 1927, immediately afterwards, uh, she's a very big figure. She's a much more national figure. She gets a lot of books and stuff written about her. If you've ever seen a depiction of a woman preacher around the 1920s, it's 100% Amy Simple McPherson. They're definitely, um, you know, um, mimicking her or parroting her. It's actually kind of interesting because shortly after the trial, um, her mom actually leaves the church. Her mom is like, look, McPherson, you're getting too much into the Hollywood. You're, well, Amy, she doesn't call her by her 
second husband's last name. Uh, you know, hey, 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 daughter, hey, Amy, you are getting too much into the Hollywood, to the money aspect of it. Um, you, you're just, you know, you're, you've kind of lost the ministry element of it. You know, you're just going through the sensationalism. Uh, you're, you're over-sexualizing yourself. You know, you're dressing more and more provocatively, putting on more and more makeup. Um, you know, you're getting more and more glitzy and glamoury. Um, I can't be a part of this church anymore. And so her mom actually leaves and her mom comes back, but then her mom leaves for good. So her mom comes back for a hot second. Then her mom straight up leaves for good. Um, like I said, when it comes to her later years, uh, she is weirdly progressive on race for the time period. She's like, Hey, maybe we should have people of different races, which is definitely to her credit. Uh, particularly for the time period of the 1920s. Remember this is the height of the clan. Uh, she's, she would say basically, you know, as a woman, I'm used to people thinking less of me because of my gender. Why should we think less of people because of their race, which is, uh, to her credit. Uh, by the time we get to World War II, she is a very big time World War II booster. Very hard on Hitler. Uh, very hard on the Japanese. Um, we're not going to get into World War II in this class, but I, I should say even other people from World War II, like other patriotic people, thought she was going way too far. Like, you know, God really wants to kill the Nazis and stuff like that. And even they're like, wee, that's probably a bit too far. Um, in 1944, she dies, though. She dies in 1944. She's only about 54 years old. She dies actually quite young of almost what was certainly, this is again where you get to a lot of rumors, um, but this is almost certainly an accidental overdose. Uh, some claim it was a suicide. Some claim she might have been silenced by whoever. Uh, but... More than likely, she has a heart attack after overdosing on sleeping pills. Um, by all indications, it was an accident. It was an accidental overdose. Uh, she had not been showing any suicidal tendencies or anything like that. Um, so she does die of an overdose. Actually, pretty sad. But some do claim it's suicide. Uh, she really doesn't have the best reputation after her disappearance slash reappearance. And that narrative gets pushed a lot after her death. Um, it's only relatively recently that some of the views of her have softened, but not a lot. Um, a lot of researchers and people out there still believe her to be a charlatan. The idea that she's using, you know, religion for celebrity. She was not a quote unquote true believer. She is somebody who just, I mean, I don't think they would straight up call her a cultist, but she is somebody who is using religion for her own promotion and her miraculous, you know, disappearance and reappearance is evidence of that. So the last person I'll talk about, last person I talk about is a very interesting guy who we're not going to talk too too much about because there's frankly not a lot known about him. But he's still an interesting guy, kind of in the Great Depression time period. Uh, Father Divine. So remember, Pentecostalism. And by the way, this guy's not Pentecostal. Uh, <laughs> Pentecostals would wholeheartedly not embrace this dude. Um, you know, Sister Amy, they might have had some uh, eh, ambivalence, particularly early on. Um, as we're going to see with Father Divine, uh, some of his beliefs definitely put him in the outs of all Christian denominations. Okay, so remember how Pentecostalism said that anybody could be the instrument of God? You know, God could speak through anybody. Anybody could get the Holy Spirit, that sort of thing. Well, Father Divine goes one step further. Um, he says he is God. Uh, yeah, he says he's God. He says there is a God, and I'm it. Um, he calls himself God. In fact, the term Father Divine is something mainly used by like newspapers and like <laughs> to describe him because it's just weird to be like, well, this guy who calls himself God, that sometimes his followers would call him Father Divine, but you know, it's you're using it as a name of God, like you know, the Divine Father, Father Divine. So, what do we know about Old Father Divine? Uh, not much, not much at all. 
Very, very, very little is known about his early life. Almost nothing is known definitively. Uh, we don't even know what the guy's real name was. I'm uh, sorry, not real name. Um, well, yeah, real name, yeah, his birth name, government name, whatever you want to call him. We don't know where he was born. We don't know when he was born. We don't know who he was born to. More than likely, he was born in the 1870s. Almost certainly he was born after slavery. Um, his parents were almost certainly slaves or enslaved people. They might have been sharecroppers. We don't know if he was born in Georgia. They were talking he was born in Georgia or maybe Maryland or maybe somewhere else. Nobody really knows. Um, he probably was born in Georgia or Maryland. We don't know. He was probably born under the name George Baker or used it early on in his life. But once again, we don't know. We really don't know that much about this guy until he kind of, I hate to say it, appears, but he kind of appears in upstate New York. He kind of appears in upstate New York. Kind of appears in upstate New York saying, hey, everybody, I'm God. Um, I'm going to move into this predominantly, actually not predominantly, only white neighborhood, and I'm going to bring in my followers who all think I'm God. And uh, yeah. Now, I bet you're wondering, that sounds like a cult leader. And um, you're right. It does sound a lot like a cult leader. Uh, for instance, he forbids his followers from doing all sorts of things like drinking, smoking, having sex, cursing, uh, you know, your usual, you know, fuddy-duddy religious stuff. Um, yeah, that's kind of conventional. But he also claims he's God while he's doing it. Um, and he claims he's God all the time. Like, all the time, all the time. He is all the time claiming that he is God. Um, in 1932, like kind of in the midst of the Great Depression, he makes his biggest splash. You've got one more slide. He moves to Harlem. He moves to Harlem in 1932. This is where he stays for most of the Great Depression. He stays for in Harlem for most of the Great Depression and weirdly gets a pretty big following around Harlem because like he seems pretty successful for the time period. They always say that he dresses in very nice clothes and has fancy, you know, fancy jewelry. Always seems to have plenty of cash on him. Uh, he's a very short man in stature. I should say he's only about five, two. He's actually quite short. And, um, he's like builds his own little temples, not temples, but his own little like churches and, you know, heaven centers. I think he calls them where he just like, you know, promotes this thing, and he's all about, like, you know, positive thinking. He's like, oh, use the positive words and the good words. You know, think good thoughts, and good things will happen to you. And, you know, it seems innocuous enough, except he's claiming he's God all the time, which is kind of weird, but <coughs> I wouldn't say he's beloved in Harlem, but he's weirdly tolerated in Harlem by a lot of figures. Now, does he get in trouble with the law? Yeah, on several occasions he gets in trouble with the law, mainly with money stuff. Uh, they're like, you know, okay, where does your money come from? He's like, oh, I don't need, I don't need to tell you where my money comes from. I'm God. I can just tell you that. Uh, yeah, I, I can just make it. You know, I don't need to keep accounting because I'm God. I, I can just do what I want. Um, uh, like the people ask him, like, you know, well, where are you from? Can you do a biography? He's like, well, you know, I, there is a biography about me. It's called the Bible. It's a great book. Like, but what about this current incarnation? You know, the, the, you know, this five foot two black guy. Can you tell about his life? He's like, oh, you know, the, the beginnings of my earthly life are not and not interesting to human beings. Like, he's just kind of doing his own thing. Um, I should say though, um, he gets some really bad PR because of some of his followers. 
because he's claiming he's God and he gets, you know, visions saying that he's God and, you know, this can empowers everybody else. Some of his followers do take it off the deep end as though he wasn't taking it off the deep end himself. Uh, in particular, there's a case where there's an individual who claims that he is John the Baptist or John the Revelator or St. John. I don't know, some sort of John. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm St. John. I'm, I'm like the Herald. I'm John the Baptist. You know, he got God's here. And, you know, we're, we're, all the religious figures are coming back, which, okay, that's that's weird enough. I mean, yeah, we have somebody calling his God, but okay. Problem is, this John the Baptist character, or St. John the Revelator, or whatever the heck, he's some sort of John. He's like, and God told me that the Virgin Mary is back, and she's a 17-year-old little girl. And so I need to kidnap the 17-year-old little girl kidnap her and then get her pregnant because you know that's you know that, that, you know virgin mary has all sorts of cool babies you know like jesus so i'm gonna make another one with her uh and he does that he actually kidnaps this little girl 17 years old well not little girl but still a child 17 years old uh brainwashes her <coughs> into believing that she is the virgin mary and therefore she has to like have sex with him repeatedly in order to father a child. This is not Father Divine doing it. It's basically one of his followers. Father Divine gets brought into it because even though he's like, I've never met this man in time in my life. You know, I live in Harlem. This guy's from California. Uh, it's still like he says that he's your follower. Uh, the heat kind of gets hot on him for a while. He ultimately does leave. Uh, I should mention, though, I should mention, though, he is married. He is married to Mother Divine. Um, Mother Divine, if you go over one slide, you can see she is a little bit old, actually more than a little bit older than he is, and also considerably taller. Uh, she looks quite a bit taller than Father Divine. Uh, she claims that she is the sacred mother, the divine mother. I don't think that's, I don't think God's wife is mentioned in the Bible. I'm, I'm not sure God has a wife, but um, basically, for Father Divine, it's like, no, 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 I got Mother Divine. Uh, she dies. She dies uh, around around this time period, around the 40s or so. Uh, she does die. After she dies, a year or two after that, um, a one of his followers, who's a like 20-year-old Canadian, says, hey, um, I think we should get married because you're God, and I believe you're God, and I want to marry you. And they get married for quite a while. Mother Divine too. Her name is Mother Divine too. the second Mother Divine. Uh, sometimes he called her Sweet Angel. As you can see, she is a lot younger than him. She's also of a different race, which that went over great in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, somebody claiming he's God marrying a, a Canadian woman who's like 40, 50 years younger than he is. Maybe not that much younger, but like at least at least 30 years younger than him. Actually, a lot younger than him. Um, he, in 1942, when things get too hot, he does kind of move to Pennsylvania. He moves to Pennsylvania, and as you can see, the house he moves into, Woodmont, it's a very fancy house. It's like this crazy, elaborate house, and he lives there for the rest of his life. Um, he dies in 1965. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said he died in 1965, but because according to his followers and his widow— uh, he's still alive. He's still alive. God can't die. And so they referred to him in the present tense, even though he dies in 1965, until his wife, until Mother Divine the Second, or Mother Divine Two, or Sweet Angel, or whatever the heck you want to call her, until she dies, uh, she says that he is in the present tense. And guess how long she lives? Until very recently. She only dies in 2017, at the age of 91. So that's actually an interview with her whenever, you know, shortly before her death. She, yeah. Yeah, she lives till she's 91. She's like, yeah, you know, uh, I was married to God for, you know, a couple of years. Um, you know, 
I was married for God, and then I was a widow, God's widow, for 50 years. But uh, seriously, what, what man could compete with God? That's what she said. She's like, you know, whenever interviewers asked him, do you ever think about getting married again? She's like, well, you know, when your first husband is God, and by the way, he's still living, according to my you know, reckoning, um, no other man can compete. You know, how can you compete with God? As I said, we're, you know, I just mentioned Father Divine because, number one, he's an interesting story, and he's also weirdly impactful for a lot of things. Uh, pretty good with civil rights-y stuff. There's a lot of civil rights people, like, later on in the 50s and 60s, who weirdly looked at the way that, the way that Father Divine acted in the 1930s as, like, okay, yeah, this, this could be a template. And, like, I don't know, he's weirdly egalitarian and, you know, equally racial in a time when most people aren't. But he's still claiming that he was God, and not as a metaphor. He, he claimed he was God, like capital G-O-D, God. So, interesting individual, that Father Divine. All right, go over one more slide. Let's wrap this up. A little bit longer than I thought it'd be, but you know what? That's fine. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the rise of quote-unquote common Christianity. Something we've never talked about whenever we're starting this class is how I focus on this idea of popular piety, what ordinary folks are believing. But it's also a religion of spectacle. As, we're, as you've seen with all these individuals, there's an element of spectacle, of the fabulous, of the fact that like the press is getting involved with this. And they are really pushing this idea <clears throat> that you know, religion is going and it can be uh, not just the frozen chosen, which I know we've talked about, they've moved away before, but just it's a true spectacle, spectacle like this ongoing show you can go to. It's more fabulous and over the top than anything you've ever seen before in your life. And that's the movement of God. Does it have impact on the modern day? Yeah, it does. Um, Pentecostalism still very much around. Mega churches are the pretty much the only growing church in the United States. Various mega churches. I'm sure we can name mega church pastors. Um, you can even talk about, are there some mega churches around Thibodeau? I can't think of any off the top of my head in Thibodeau. I know there's plenty in New Orleans. Several in Baton Rouge. I mean, the big one, you know, Lakeland, that's over in um, Houston, Joel Olsteins. But all these changes are going to kind of come into a play, uh, not just through World War II, which we're not really going to talk about, but also in the 1950s. And this idea that everybody can be special and different really gets challenged by the 50s with conformity culture. But that's something for another day. All right, I went a little bit longer than I thought, but you know what? This sounds pretty good. Um, Hopefully y'all had a, a good day and I'll be there on Monday and hopefully my little son is just fine and I'm sure he would be. So, all right. If you have any questions, feel free to email me. Thank you.